turn around in fellowship, shake hands with one another. come back had no choice had to come back had a hard time terrible time appreciate you praying for us and lifting us up and keeping us in mind that uh, we come back had to amen I'm glad to be saved tonight how about you 
Good to have all of you here. Good to have these folks visiting with us from Massachusetts. Good to have you down from the Denise's Church in Boston and others here. Let's pray and ask the Lord to touch the service tonight. Father, we thank you. What a joy it is to be in the house of the Lord. And what a joy it is to be able to lean on you and to trust in you. And we're so thankful, Lord, that we can lean on you and trust in you. Father, touch this service. Open our hearts to your word. Let us grow in the scripture tonight. I pray that our hearts will be touched and our hearts will be open to what you have for us in your word. Bless now the service. In Jesus' name, amen. Page 122, Standing on the Promises, 122. Standing on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages let His praises ring. Glory in the highest I will shout and sing, standing on the promises of God. Standing, standing, standing on the promises of God my Savior. Standing on the promises that cannot fail When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail By the living word of God I shall prevail Standing on the promises of God Standing, standing Standing on the promises of God my Savior I cannot fall, listening every moment to the Spirit's call, resting in my Savior as my all in all, standing on the promises of God, standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior, standing, standing. Thank you. You may be seated. As that rushers come forward to receive her offering, everything you give on Wednesday night goes to support her Bible conference. And even though we've just got over it, uh, it uh, everything you give will help us next year. We had a great week. Appreciate your giving. Uh, everyone's told me how great the choir did at the Southwide. I appreciate you going over there. We thought about you. In fact, I told my wife we were six hours behind you, and I said they're uh, singing right now. And so now. But everybody said you did great. And I was thrilled about the offering. That throws us over 80, around over $80,000 that we've raised in just this past uh, few weeks. And it'll help us. I'm almost certain we'll reach our goal of 100000 by the end of the year. So exciting things. I praise the Lord for it. Let's pray you give tonight. Father, again, bless our giving. Thank you for what you're doing. Continue to touch us and touch us in this service. In Jesus' name, amen.
Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of James chapter 1. I'm glad tonight the Lord is our hiding place. Amen. Tim did a good job. He's getting married in a couple of weeks, and about four months he'll appreciate that song even more, won't he? Amen. <laughs> James chapter 1, let's stand as we read, honor the reading of his word. James 1, we began the book of James a couple of months ago. We're down to verse 13. Let's pick up there tonight and work our way through verse 16. I thought about this text, and as I meditated on the text and thoughts that I'll share with you tonight, uh, this thought or this title came to my mind, a warning, the devil is a pro at fishing. Now, you'll understand that in just a moment. But look at verse 13, the book of James 1. The Scripture said, Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Thank you. you. may be seated. Let's pray. And then tonight we're going to think about these verses and see what James has to say about temptation. Let's pray tonight. Ask the Lord to open His Word to us. Our Father, tonight in Jesus' name, here is a portion of Your Word that we all need to listen to. Here is a portion of Your Word that we need to understand. So we ask You, Lord, to speak to us now. We ask You, Lord, to open our hearts and open our minds that we might comprehend the truth of God. Father, this is your word. It's not just any other book. And so it's very important how we hear. And we ask your Lord not only to give us a reverence and be, help us to be very attentive in our hearing, but I pray, Lord, that you would enlighten and illuminate our mind that we might comprehend the truth of God, that we might put it into our lives and practice it day by day by day. We need this truth. So, Father, fill us now with the Holy Spirit. Honor the Lord Jesus and all that we say and do, and we'll praise you and thank you, for it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. A number of years ago, I read a book entitled Knowing God's Secrets by a fellow named John Hunter. One of the chapters there, he has a, one of the chapters in the book is entitled Recognizing Temptation. And in the chapter, Mr. Hunter tells of how as a young Christian seeking to live for God, he found himself much burdened and distressed with temptation in his life. He describes how he encouraged himself with the thought that someday temptation would no longer be a problem in his life. And he imagined that as he would grow older, that he would assume some kind of holy respectability that would solve all the problems of temptation in his life. And he imagined that at some point in his Christian life, he would arrive to a state where he would be free from temptation. But as the years passed, he found out that that was not true. In fact, he stated that he'd learned two basic realities as the years had passed, and I think these are good. One, he said, first, temptation was just as strong and subtle as it was years ago. Even though he was much older in the Lord and many years had passed, he found out that temptation was equally as strong as it was in the years before. And two... He found this to be true, that he was just as weak as he ever was and just as prone to failure. 
What was John Hunter saying? John Hunter saying it doesn't matter how long you've been saved. It doesn't matter how old you are physically or whatever it is. You'll never get to the point that you're not bothered by temptation. As the years pass, you'll find temptation is just as strong and you are just as weak. So temptation is a matter that we all face. It's a matter that we all must deal with. It is a lesson that we all ought to learn. I think about a quote that I came across a number of years ago, and I do not know the source of it. I don't remember if I heard it or read it. But I think it's a powerful quote. I have never forgot it. In fact, I put it in your bulletin because I want you to remember it. It's an equation of sorts, you might say. But the quote is simply this. Temptation plus opportunity equals trouble. Temptation plus opportunity equals trouble. You see, a person may be tempted to commit a certain sin, but not have the opportunity to commit that sin. A person may have a longing in their heart. They may have been imagining certain things and doing certain things, but yet not have the opportunity to actually fulfill those desires. There is temptation, but there is not the opportunity to fulfill that temptation. But on the other hand, someone may have temptation or may have opportunity, but not be tempted. They may be in an environment that there's all kinds of tempting situations around them, but yet they're not tempted by those things. There is not that desire. There is not that pull there on their part, those things that are surrounding them. For one, there may be temptation, but no opportunity. For another, there may be opportunity, but there is no temptation. The problem is when you get the two together. When you have temptation and opportunity, and suddenly they're joined together, then you have trouble. Now, that's what James is talking about. James is talking about temptation and the opportunity and the trouble that comes when these two get together. James talks about temptation. In fact, if you've been with us on Wednesday night, you know that James has made reference to temptation a couple of times already in the chapter. Chapter 1, verse 2, he said, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. Down in verse 12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. We notice in verses 1 through 12 that James talks about temptation. He talks about it in the sense of a believer being tried. He's talking about that which is outward, that, those trials that are going on around a believer. There's not an ideal of a solicitation to do evil as we often think of when we use the word temptation. He's talking about trials, and we notice that. But now in verse 13, he begins to talk about the type of temptation that we think of when we use the word temptation. We would never use the word temptation when we talk about trials. But James now, we would use the word to think about this pull at us, this solicitation to do wrong or to do evil. That's how James begins to use the word now. And he used the word in verse 13. He said, let no man say when he is tempted. Same word that he used in verse 2. Same word that he used in verse 12. But in verses 1 through 12, he had in mind that which goes on around us. But now in verse 13, he is talking about that which goes on within us. He's talking about that which is pulling at us. He's talking about temptation. The British writer Oscar Wilde said, I can resist everything but temptation. Well, James gives us a reason how the re reason for resisting temptation. Let's look at it tonight. Three things. Fill in the blanks on your bulletin. Follow along as we study the Scripture. First of all, 
I want you to notice that James talks about the presence of temptation. James talks about the presence of temptations. Let me just remind you a couple of things in our past studies. When James talked about trials, he talked about trials as a definite matter. Verse 2 again. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations, when you fall into different kinds of trials. Not if, but when. My brethren, count it all joy when. He talked about trials and experiencing trials as a definite matter. Now, notice carefully verse 13. He once again talks about temptation now, that which goes on within us, that which pulls at us. And he also speaks of temptation as a definite experience. Verse 13, let no man say when he is tempted. Not if, but when. I put the emphasis upon the word when. Again, the issue is not what to do if temptation comes. The issue is what to do when temptations come. He not only talks about the believer and the matter that uh, temptation is a definite matter, but also when he talked about trials, he talked about trials as something that everybody experiences. You see, there is no one immune from trials. In verses, uh, verses 9 and 10, he talked about the brother a low degree. Verse 10, he talked about the rich. And we saw in those verses there that he said, it doesn't matter whether you are below the social level or on the top of it. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, no one is immune from trials. Well, when he talks about temptation, he also speaks of temptation as an experience of every man. Look at verse 14. But every man, he said, is tempted. Just like the rich and poor will have trials, the rich and poor will experience temptation in their life. No man is exempt from temptation. Nobody is immune from temptation. It's like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 in verse 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And the word common that he uses there is a word that simply means human, that which is after man. He said trials. There's no kind of trial that's going to come your way, or temptation rather, that'll come your way that is not after man or human. In other words, what he's saying is that temptation is something that we experience. The truth is tonight, there's not a one of us in this room tonight that is not tempted in some way or the other. You say, temptation doesn't bother me. Then you're lying. Because temptation is something that we all deal with in our life. Whether you're young or old, we have to deal with temptation. Whether you're rich or poor, man or woman, every man, every man. I think about what John White said in the book, The Fight. He said, you will be tempted. The kinds of temptation may change. Candies for kids, sensuality for the young, riches for the middle-aged, and power for the aged. But as long as you live, you will be tempted. So he talks about the presence of temptation. But notice carefully what he has to say about the presence of temptation in our life. Two things. One, in verse 13 we see that he says that temptation cannot be attributed to God. You cannot blame God for temptation. Temptation cannot be attributed to God. Look what he said in verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and neither tempteth he any man. Now James here, there were some in James' day that taught that God was 
indirectly responsible for the existence of evil in the world. There were some rabbis in that day that taught a theory that involved an evil impulse. And what that theory was that this evil impulse, impulse was a part of man's original created nature. Thus, God was directly or indirectly responsible for temptation. He was the one that allowed sin in the world. Thus, he was indirect, indirectly responsible for sin. He's the one that created us with these desires. Thus, he was indirectly responsible for sin and so on. So they taught in those days that God was the one responsible. But James comes along and says, I want you to understand something tonight. I don't care how you look at it and how you approach it. You cannot blame God for your temptation. See the words there, let no man say when he's tempted of God. <coughs> In verse 13, that I am tempted of God. The tense of the words there uh, is very strong. We would say it this way. Don't even remotely suggest the thing. Don't even think the thing. Don't, he's talking about don't even, don't even try to say it. Don't even rationalize such a thought. It would be an absurd thing to think that God is responsible for temptation. And he gives us a couple of reasons why. For one thing, he says in verse 13, that God himself lacks the capacity to be tempted. For he said God cannot be tempted with evil. It's not a matter that he will not. It's a matter that he cannot. You see, God cannot be tempted. He is beyond the capacity and the ability to be tempted. God has no vulnerability to evil, and he's utterly impregnable to the onslaughts of evil. He cannot be tempted. And second of all, he is not the one that causes temptation. He said in verse 13, he said that God cannot be tempted, don't even, even remotely suggest the ideal, and neither tempteth he any man. In other words, he said, God's not the one that tempts us. He'll go on and explain what tempts us in a moment, but you can't blame God for your sin. Now, we're a generation that's very good about blaming God for everything. I hear these movements today, and I think about uh, the homosexual movement and things like that. I hear it all the time. Someone says, but God made me this way. No, 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 no. Sin's a choice. I don't care what it is. It's not a behavior problem. It's a choice. It's a choice in any situation. Not a matter how God created us, it's a choice. But we blame God for this, and we blame God for that. But Paul, or rather James, makes it very clear that temptation cannot be attributed to God. But notice something else, second of all. Temptation not only cannot be attributed to God, but you also see in verse 14 that it cannot be avoided by man. He wants us to know that there is temptation that we're going to face temptation in our life. Now, we can't blame God for it, but he wants us to understand that it cannot be avoided. Verse 14 again, he said, but every man is tempted. And he emphasizes that every person experiences temptation. Now, the question is why? Why is it that we are tempted? Why is it there are certain things that pull at us and certain things that tempt us? It's simply because of the desires that we have. James calls them lust. Look at verse 14. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. Now look at the word for a moment. When we think of lust, we usually think of an illicit desire, a strong or longing or something for something that is illicit. But the word that is used here is a word that could involve that, but it's a word that just talks about a deep, strong feeling and desire that you have. It could be a deep, strong feeling for something good. 
or it could be a deep, strong feeling for something that is bad. But he's talking about the desires that we have. Now, follow me for just a moment. There are desires that every person has, and these are desires that have been given to us by God. There's a desire of thirst. Why do you drink? Why do you get a glass of water or something like that? Because there is a God-given desire in us that is for th- it's called thirst, and it's there that our bodies might have certain needs that are met. But a God-given desire. There is a desire to be happy. One of the longings of this world and everybody in the world is they want to be happy. They long to be happy. They have a deep desire to be happy. They want to have joy. They want to have a good time in life. They want peace and satisfaction in life. That's a God-given desire there. A desire to want contentment. A desire to want peace. Even the uh, attraction to the opposite sex, that's a God-given desire. That's why a man is attracted to a woman and vice versa, a woman to a man. That's why teenagers, when you're, of course, four and five years old, you think, man, and you see people kissing, you think, yeah, how could you do that? But then years change and, and you're buying kisses, you know what I mean? But uh, you, you, there's that part of us there, we are attracted to someone else. That's a God-given desire. A God-given desire that's been given to us. And, but nothing wrong with those desires. But when sin entered the world, then there it began to exist a system that sought to get us to fulfill these God-given desires in an improper way. Suddenly sin existed. Suddenly there was a world system involved. And this world system began to get us to abuse, seek get us to abuse these God-given desires. Nothing wrong with a thirst wanting something to drink provided you don't fulfill it in a way that's forbidden by God. There is nothing wrong with the desire to be happy and want to have peace in your heart. But the trouble is, in our desire and, and, and longing to have joy and peace, we try everything but the right things to have joy and peace. Nothing wrong with being attracted to the opposite sex and nothing wrong with the relationships between man and woman as long as they're fulfilled within God's plan. And that is always marriage and nothing more and nothing less. But what happens is there is the fulfillment of these desires and these desires in a way that God never intended them to be. Not too long ago I was reading about what they called export rejects in Britain. And after World War II, there was a drive to boost the economy and build the export of consumer goods such as china and pottery and and cloth goods and so forth and all these things were sent abroad the problem was none of them stayed in the country the british people never saw these goods all of them were sent overseas but they could buy what was called export rejects these were ones maybe that were cracked or there was a flaw in the material whatever they were not good enough to send overseas but they kept them at home and the people bought them and they bought them as fast as they could, and they had to pay enormous prices for them. They paid an exceptionally high price for these items. When I ran there, I thought about how there is these desires that we have. But when we fulfill them outside of God's will, we're getting a second-rate fulfillment, a faulty product. And as we see in just a moment, we always have to pay a high price for it. Now, everyone of us in this room tonight, are you with me now? Say amen. We all have certain desires. We all have certain longings. James talks about his own lust. See that? James chapter 114, his own lust. We all have certain desires, and we all have certain longings. I heard about three preachers that were together one time, 
And they got to talking, and one of them said, you know what it do is good is just to be honest with one another and open up our hearts and just share with one another and share with one another things that we struggle with. And they said that would be good. So the first one, he admitted to the fact that he slipped off once in a while and got him a little drink. And the second one, he finally admitted and confessed. He said, well, I have a gambling problem. He said, nobody knows about it, but I have trouble and I have a great uh, problem with gambling. So the third one sat there, and they looked at him. He didn't say anything to everyone. They said, well, we've confessed what's yours. He said, mine's gossip, and I can't wait to get back home. Well, we all have certain desires, and we all have longings. There are things that pull at me and things that pull at you. Now, the things that pull at me may not pull at you, and the things that pull at you may not pull at me. There's our own desires. There's our own longings. Look at 1 John 2, 16 for just a moment. Here's an interesting trinity of temptation that is given there. Look at 1 John 2 and verse 16. Turn there. Look at it. 1 John 2, 16. He talks about three things there, a trinity of temptations that he gives. And these, all the temptations in life could be wrapped up and summed up in these two things. But he talks about all that is in the world. 1 John 2, 16. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. You could take all temptation and put it inside those three things. The lust of the flesh, that's a consuming passion to do. That's what we want to do in life. There's this thing out there that we have a consuming passion to do. The lust of the flesh. And the lust of the eyes, that's a consuming passion to have. There's something we see, there's something that we want. Not only something we want to do, but something we want to have. And then the pride of life, that's a consuming passion to be. Not only a desire and our lust for the things we want to do and a desire for the things that we want to have, but there's the things that we want to be. And so all of these things, all of these things, he talks about them, how that there is these desires, a system that is pulling at us to fulfill these desires outside of God's plan. It is the presence of temptation. Everybody here deals with it tonight. Everybody battles with it every day of your life on, in the workplace and in the marketplace. In life, there are things that tempt you. It's the presence of temptation. But look at the second thing. Notice, second of all, the process of temptation. In verse 14, we're not only reminded of the presence of temptation, that every man is tempted, but also the process of temptation. James helps us to see how temptation works or how we are tempted. And James uses a couple of interesting pictures here. He uses one of a hunter, and he uses one of a fisherman. And he uses these two pictures to describe the process of temptation. He talks about being drawn away, and he talks about being enticed. Now, he's spoken of lust. Notice how he speaks now of lures. Look at two things. He talks about in the word there, drawn away. He talks about luring the believer away. Luring the believer away. He talks about being drawn away. Verse 14, every man is tempted when he is drawn away. That would have the ideal of enticement. The phrase drawn away there literally means to be snared in a trap. Now, here's the picture behind the word. It is the picture of a hunter setting a baited trap. He goes out in the woods or something. He has some kind of trap, whether it be a rope trap tied to a tree or some kind of 
a cage that he has built out of certain materials. But on the inside of that trap, he is going to put something in there that will appeal to the animal that he's trying to trap. Piece of meat, whatever it might be. But there is a baited trap. And the meat or whatever is put on the inside has the purpose of appealing to the desires of the animal. It's some kind of animal that he's wanting to trap. Let's say it's a fox. And so he puts that in there which appeals to foxes. And he puts it inside that trap. And the whole purpose of that bait there is to lure that fox away, to lure it out of his place of safety and away from their course and into the trap to drag them away and to snare them in a trap. Now, I want you to understand something about temptation tonight. First and foremost, I want you to understand that the purpose of temptation is not just to draw you in, it is to draw you away. You see, there is this matter of serving God and this matter of glorifying God with your life and honoring God and pleasing God. We're in a relationship with God. And temptation is out there to draw us away from God. We're over here trying to serve God, honor Him, loving Him, going to church, reading our Bibles, being all that He wants us to be. But over here is a world that wants to pull us from over here to over there. It's a matter of being drawn away. And that's the first thing you understand about temptation is it's trying to pull you away from something. It is luring the believer away, drawn away. But not only luring the believer away, but second of all, luring the believer in. Second word is enticed. And the word drawn away, as I said, was a picture of a hunter baiting a trap. But the word enticed would have to do with entrapment. Luring the believer away has to do with enticement. But luring the believer in has to do with entrapment. The word enticed that he uses there is a fishing term. And the fishing term that spoke of baiting the hook. Now, you go fishing. You use a hook to catch fish with. But you've got to put something on that hook to draw the fish to the hook. So there is the drawing away process, but there's a little more involved. There is that drawing them away from their place of safety, getting their attention, appealing to something that they desire, something they like, and they turn aside and they come in and take the bait and in, do, in so doing, they're caught. They're not only drawn away, but they're drawn in. Now, that's how temptation works in our life. We're here trying to live for God. And every day of our life, there's this world system out there, this old flesh that's trying to draw us away from God and draw us back in the world. And the world all the time is dangling their baited hooks in front of us in order to lure us away, to appeal to our desires. And if we turn aside and take the hook, we're caught. May I remind you tonight, the devil is a pro at fishing. He knows what kind of bait you like. He knows whether you are attracted by a rebel lure. He knows if you're attracted to a cheese ball. He knows whether or not you're attracted to a big, nice, grade-A worm. He knows what attracts to you, attracts you. And so he knows how to appeal to you. He is a master fisherman. And you've got to watch out for the devil's hooks. Can I get an amen there? It's a process. The believer's temptation seeks to lure us away and then to lure us in. But look at the third and the final thing. You not only have the process of temptation and the presence, but thirdly, the product of temptation. Look at verse 15. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth 
sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. He's talked about how every one of us battle with temptation in our life. Every one of us deal with temptation. It's something out there, and something our own lust. For you, it may be one thing, for me, another. But there's something there that we battle with, trying to draw us away from God and to trap us and to hook us. James said, I want to remind you what happens if you let temptation draw you away. Notice two things about it. I give you these in close. He talks about, one, the conception of sin. Look at this. This is interesting. He talks about the conception of sin. Verse 15, Then when lust hath conceived. Underscore the word conceived there for a moment. It simply talks about a woman conceiving a child. Now, I want you to follow me for just a moment. This is where yielding to temptation is started. I want you to understand something tonight. Being tempted is not a sin. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to yield to temptation. It's a sin to respond to temptation. But yielding or but being tempted is not the sin. It is yielding to that temptation that becomes a sin. Every day of our lives we're tempted. There's something that pulls at us, a fleeting thought or a fleeting feeling or something there. And those things happen because we're human, we're flesh. And those kind of things are going to pull at us. But when it becomes sin, it's when there is this matter of sin and thought and all of it being joined together. First, there is temptation. But then a person first yields to it in their heart. Listen to me. Are you listening to me? You know where sin starts? It starts right here first. It starts in your will. It starts in your heart. It's not the deed itself. Sin starts when you make the decision to think about it or you make the decision to do it or you make the decision to go or whatever. It starts when you make the decision in your heart. And at that moment, when your will and the opportunity are married together, as one writer called an unholy marriage, that's when sin is conceived. And if it's conceived, it's just a matter of time that it'll give birth in your life. It starts with a person maybe thinking about the matter, thinking about this or thinking about that. Your affairs get started. Somebody appeals. And you begin imagining you being with that lady and things of that matter. That's when it's conceived. And when sin is conceived in your heart, it's a matter of time. It may be nine months, but somewhere, if it's conceived, it will give birth in your life. Being tempted is not sin. It's like D.L. Moody said, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from building a nest in your hair. Can I get an amen? It's the conception of sin. When you begin to think about it, when you begin to imagine it, when you begin to dwell upon it, I maybe would like to do this or that and the other, that's when it's conceived. And when it's conceived, it will give birth in your life. What you want to do is make sure there is no conception in your life. You can't go through life. You can't live in a monastery, cut yourself off from temptation. Every day of your life, you're going to face things out there that's going to appeal to your flesh. 
Every day of your life, you're going to be confronted with things that's going to appeal to you and things that appeal to your lust. You can't run from it. You can't hide from it. But what you've got to learn to do is never let it be conceived in your heart and mind. The conception of sin. Think about David. You remember David? In fact, turn back to 2 Samuel 11. I don't know if you're awake tonight, are you? Look at 2 Samuel 11. I want you to look at this story. Talking about the conception of sin. You know the story of David. David committing adultery. Let me show you the, what happened here and the whole process involved in the whole matter. First or Second Samuel chapter 11. Look at the story. And there's just a few words I point out to you that helps you to see the matter. Second Samuel 11. Notice verse 2. The Bible said, And it came to pass at an eventide that David arose from off his bed, walked upon the roof of the king's house. He gets out in the morning, goes out on the balcony, stretches and his roof, of course, is higher than everybody else. This is the king's house and the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. He looks down, he sees this woman bathing, a very attractive woman. Well, at this point, no sin has been committed. He walked out on that balcony of innocence. He didn't know there was a woman down there bathing. He walks out there and he looks down and lo and behold, there to surprise is a beautiful woman bathing herself. He looked. No problem here, but notice in verse 3. And David sent and inquired after her. He began to think about the woman he saw. She was on his mind. She was in his thoughts. And then he wanted to know more about her. So he sent one to find out who that was. What's happened? Sin has been conceived. Temptation was there. And instead of David walking away and crucifying his flesh and battling that old flesh of his and his desires, David begins to think about her. And imagine he went back in the his room and began to shave and he's thinking about the beautiful woman that he thought saw all through the day he thinks about her and he begins to think how attractive she was and he dwells upon her for days and days and he finally says find out who that was what's going on is something has been conceived in David's heart but look at verse 4 and David sent messengers and took her there was temptation no sin but it was conceived and when it was conceived in his mind and heart, then it was given birth to in his life. There is the conception of sin. But look at the second thing. There is the conclusion of sin. For James said in verse 15, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. See those words, bringeth forth? They're in line with the word conception there. It literally means to give birth. It literally means to cease to be pregnant. The ideal is birth has been given. There has been a conception there. And when sin was conceived, it was only a matter of time that sin was given birth to. What James is talking about is when sin has been yielded to in the will and in the heart, somewhere it will be yielded to in the life. But notice the conclusion. He tells us that the fruit of sin is Death. Look at that word death for a moment. It's a word that is used throughout the Bible to speak of separation. But as used here, it has the ideal of a stillbirth. Now think with me for just a moment. There's this old world out there 
and it appeals to you. Especially these young people and folks that have grown up in Christian homes that they had moms and dads that had some morals and standards about them and they said no about this and no about that. And so they grow up in that atmosphere and they have friends at school that do this and go there and they talk about this and talk about that. And so they grow up thinking I'm missing something in life. My mom and dad were too strict. They wouldn't let me do here. And so I missed out on all these things in my life. And so they grow up thinking about what would it be like if I do this? What would it be like if I go here? And so on and so on and so on and so on. And then the day comes when they get out from under mom and dad's authority and they begin to experiment. There's that pull there. Somewhere there had been a conception, temptation, but no opportunity. Now there's opportunity and there is temptation, and that's when trouble comes. And they think, hey, this is what will really make me happy. This is what will really give me joy. But when it's born, it's a stillbirth, a very disappointing experience. The devil paints the picture, hey, if you'll yield to my temptation, if you'll do what I want you to do, this is all the joy you'll have. This will really make you happy. This will give you peace. But I want you to listen to me. Sin always ends up in a stillbirth. It is a faulty, faulty experience. You find yourself separated from God. You find yourself separated from the things of God, from real joy and peace. The very thing you thought it would bring you is the very thing it cuts you off from. Notice there's verse 16, and I'm through. He says, do not err, my beloved brethren. It's no wonder James comes along after he says, look, there is temptation in your life. You're going to battle with it in your life. And if you don't deal with it somewhere, It'll be conceived in your life, and if it's ever conceived, it'll give birth in your life, and the result is always going to be separation. There's going to be a stillbirth there. He said, for that reason, do not err. Literally, don't be pulled away. Don't wonder is what he's saying. Don't stray. Do not err. Don't let temptation be the victor in your life. You don't be a victim. You be the victor. Don't be pulled away. You remember the little equation I gave in the very beginning? Temptation plus opportunity equals trouble. It equals death. It equals stillbirth. Look at your prayer sheet tonight. You see your prayer sheet? <clears throat> Several names on there we want to remember tonight. That's a great truth from the Word of God to learn, is it not? Great truth to listen to. Our missionary of the week, Brother Clayton Shumpert, he's a dear friend of our church, and he's uh, written us and called and asked for a special prayer for a revival meeting that he's holding in New York at John Morgan's church. This is where, uh, uh, went blank there for a moment. Uh, Karen Leger is working and also is where Nikki used to be. Let's remember them. Be praying for Clayton Shumpert tonight. Also, our church of the week is Lurgan Baptist in Lurgan, Northern Ireland, Brother Dennis Lyle. Dennis Lyle is a... Uh, dear friend, I had the opportunity to be in his church, great church over there, and we want to remember them tonight in prayer. Also, our hospital list, uh, Richard Holland, this is Shannon Sharp's father, also Kathy Lawson, and then Joyce Moon, she had uh, surgery, I believe she's gone home today, and, and Betty Tarpley's niece, also Lane Von Smith at Vanderbilt Hospital, newborn with heart problems, a friend is Susan Dame. Also, other special requests given to me. Jerry Smitherman is at Memorial Hospital, had surgery. Someone was telling me for uh, uh, Aaron that Jim Elkins is in the hospital. Do you know where he is, Edith? Where's Jim Elkins? Do you know if he's in the hospital? Okay, let's remember. Someone said he was in the hospital at Memorial. All right, let's remember him. Also, Charlita Wellington's brother passed away in St. Louis 
and we want to remember them. They're out there tonight. And then also for April Hall, a five-month-old uh, great niece of Jack Russell that has cancer, will have an eye removed this coming Friday. So let's remember all of these and be praying for them. And then, of course, those who have lost loved ones in our church, let's remember them. Let's all come around the altar and pray. Let's do this. When we come, let's pray that God will continue to bless. I'm thankful for what he's doing. In fact, uh, our architect's coming in tomorrow, be with us for the next two days, doing some work around here, getting some ideals, and hopefully in the next uh, few days we're going to get some schematic drawings and be able to show you some things that we're thinking about, different things. Uh, we want to continue to pray that God will bless, pray for faith tomorrow night, that God will bless us as we go out, and uh, we'll see many things done. Let's remember that. Of course, the service is on Sunday. And all the things that are going on, let's be praying for them and lifting them up to the Lord tonight in prayer. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray for Brother Shepherd. What a blessing he's been to us through the years. We thank you for his ministry. We ask your Lord to bless his meeting in New York, Brooklyn. We ask your Lord to touch him and use him there in a very special way. May many be brought to the Lord at this time when many hearts are open and soft to the gospel. Many people are reaching out and looking up. Use them there. May there be a multitude of people brought to Jesus Christ. May there be a great gathering of the net at this meeting in Brooklyn. Then, Father, we pray for Brother Dennis and the folks at Lurgan in Northern Ireland and that strife-torn country. Bless them, Lord. Bless Brother Dennis. Thank you for his ministry, for his preaching. Thank you for his friendship. Thank you, Lord, for bringing our paths together. Thank you, Lord, for the church there, blessed place, and doing a wonderful work there. God, I pray you continue to bless them. Thank you for their history and for all the things you've done through the years there. Continue to bless them and give them a great day and a great ministry. And then, Lord, for so many that are sick tonight, for those that have lost loved ones, for those who are in the hospital, for those that are having surgery, for those that are, face needs in their life, I pray for all these things, Lord, that you touch them. Meet their needs. And then, Father, we pray tonight for the truth of the word we've heard tonight that we'll put it into our hearts and live it in our lives. Father, help us all to realize tonight that if we do not guard our lives, that we're very vulnerable to temptation. Help us, Lord, never forget that temptation doesn't weaken, but we're always weak. And that we need the strength of God, the Father of lights, and His gift that cometh from above. Father, help us now, Lord, to, when tempted, to run, flee from temptation, not to allow sin to be conceived in our life, but to follow you and honor you and glorify you, that we be not drawn away and then drawn in. Father, help us tonight to learn your word and to live your word. Now, touch us on Sunday. Give us a great day. May there be a mighty anointing of the Holy Spirit upon the services, a mighty moving of the Holy Ghost. Thank you again for all that you've done. Thank you for the good reports of the services and for the preaching and the giving and the ministry the church has had in our absence. Thank you for that. Continue to bless and move. Again, bless faith tomorrow night as our teams go out. Stir us, teach us how to win others, and then, Lord, let us be used of you to win others tomorrow night. We'll thank you for all you're doing now. In Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. Shake hands of our visitors. Let them know how glad we are to have them in our services tonight.